Let's try that again. You got me, Richard? Welcome to Memorial Day weekend. You can look around and see that apparently COVID cabin fever has accelerated the exodus from Bainbridge from July 4th weekend to this weekend, which is just fine. Um, if a Memorial Day has impacted your family directly because someone in your family or someone that you know has given their life for the freedoms that we have, my condolences and my gratitude for that loss. We are, we are so busy and we're so looking forward to the times that we have where it's free at last from school or whatever it is that I, Memorial Day just sort of seems to get glossed over for how impactful it is for some families. And I just wanted to take a moment and recognize that. You know, we have been in the book of John for 39 weeks, nine full months, and actually more than a calendar year, because as some of you may have heard and watched the video, we've got a summer series, and we've been summer in the Psalms for the last few years, and uh, staff has decided that we're going to take it a different track, and we're going we're to take on the book of Philippians over the summer, and I, for one, am really looking forward to it. I'm I'm happy that we're in John and that we're not rushing our way through the book. I mean, 39 weeks, we're not even halfway through. Um, but it, it is so rich, and so is the book of Philippians. So is all the Word. So I hope you're looking forward to that. Our text this morning has to do with the sixth sign that Jesus did to authenticate himself to the Jewish people. There, the book of John... Um, I'm going to address this a couple of times, but, I, you know, the book of John is interesting in that, you know, for us, it's the fourth book, it's the fourth gospel, but it's, it's very different. And I, in my study, I didn't actually know that it is, it is thought to be perhaps the last book that was actually ever written that's included in the New Testament, somewhere around 100 A.D., so we're talking about 70, some almost 70 years after the Lord had ascended. And, and John... Had, has included several things that are a little bit different than his, his, the, the three Gospels that preceded it, which had been well in distribution up to that time. But in this sixth one, and the seventh, which is coming up in chapter 11, which is the raising of Lazarus from the dead, but this sixth one was, a, was a kind of extraordinary, and yet... It's not the most extraordinary thing that I encountered in preparing for this message. Um, these signs were important because the reason that Jesus did, as I said, is to authenticate himself to the Jewish people. And that was enormously important historically and theologically because Jesus came initially to the Jewish people. But what Jesus did right before this sign miracle and it should be coming up on the screen here shortly, is he introduces his disciples and, and then subsequently us to the power of we. The power of we. And that's going to be our theme, and we're going to return to that several times this morning, so let's pray and, and, and jump in. Father, I am uh, grateful for this chance to, to step up here. I pray that your spirit would provide the words that uh, need to be spoken this morning. I, I lift up John and Michelle and, and those of our body that are traveling, and I pray that they are getting refreshed and having a grand time. Um, I pray, Lord, specifically with respect to 
the part of this message that I've struggled with the most, which is, is to give me clarity in conveying the difference between the spiritual and the fleshly and worldly. And I just ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples questioned him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So let's stop there for a second. Let's set the scene. We're somewhere between the fall festival of the tabernacles in Calvary, Pentecost, Passover, pardon me, Passover. His disciples still don't quite understand what Jesus is up to. But they are convinced that he knows something about God that the religious teachers of, that they had heard had been telling them up to that point, they knew that Jesus was different, which is why they asked this question, a question that reflects their heritage and is consistent with what they had been taught. You see, back then, unlike now, everything in life was attributable to what God was doing, everything. Now, the pragmatic side of us can say that those folks were, it's little God, and they had little gods, and they had idols, and they had this, and they had that. Or you can just downright say that they were superstitious. It, but there was, at that time, this centrality of God impacted everything that occurred in their life. So we have this question. They're walking along. There's a man born blind. And they ask Jesus, what caused this man to be born blind? Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus answered, this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We don't know how old this man was, but he is referred to as a man. So in the Jewish culture of the day, that makes him minimally 30 years old. 30-some-odd years of blindness until, from our perspective, this chance encounter with Jesus and his disciples. Now, on first hearing that, most of us would think it appalling that God would purposely have someone born blind just so he can make a point to Jesus' disciples 30-some-odd years down the road. If that hasn't crossed any of your minds, then I guess I am as weird as I think I am sometimes. But you, you know, when you first hear that, you go, that ain't right. But that's our scene, and we're going to come back to that shortly. Verse 4, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work as long as I am in the world I am the light of the world. As tempting as it is to spend time on Jesus repeating that he is the light of the world, which he first introduced us to back in chapter 8, that's not where we're going to camp out this morning. Jesus begins this statement with, we must do the works of him who sent me. We'll begin with the phrase, him who sent me. It appears 13 times in the Gospels, and John uses it more frequently, and he chose a different word for sent than the other Gospel writers. Now, since John thought it important enough 
to use a different word. And even though the English translators both used sent, seemed to me that why, if John chose a different word, we should take a look at that. John goes to considerable lengths in his gospel. As I noted, it's, it's the, one of the last books in your New Testament. And John, he was well acquainted with the gospels that had been written. They were written some 30 years after Jesus had ascended. And now that means that they had been in distribution for some 30 years. He was getting old and he sat down and said, I'm, you know, I've got to write, and he did, right? And so those, by the way, those three first Gospels are known as the synoptics. <clears throat> Why? Think of the word synonym. You know, if it's something similar. They're similar, but they account for Jesus' life in a slightly different way. Matthew focuses on the king and, and, and the sovereignness of Jesus. Mark as portrays Jesus as a servant, and Luke as the Son of Man. Those are the, the, the themes about Jesus that is woven throughout each of them. And so by the time John got a right to writing, his gospel, he had the same or similar events, but he was going to articulate something just a little bit differently. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all used a verb form for sent, for the word that we get, apostle. Okay, and the word apostle, or in this case, the verb form, it's, it's interesting in that it has to do with setting apart for a, for a particular thing, or in this particular case, set apart to send, right? The apostles were set apart to send. Well, John chooses a different word, which literally means thrust. There's no set apart aspect to the word that he picked. Bear in mind, John didn't know he was the last author. But having read the other accounts, he thought it was important that from his perspective, he heard Jesus just slightly differently than his three, the three other gospel writers. Not dramatically. It's not a contradiction. It's just that it places a different emphasis. For him, it wasn't so much about being set apart as it was about being sent. Currently, think of it like this. Currently, they should be throwing this up shortly. I get about one or two of these every single day in my Google feed. They're optical illusions known as, what do you see first? Which is it for you? Do you see the two faces looking at one another, or do you see the chalice in the middle? Right? There's no right or wrong answer. You see one of them first. You see my point? It's that... Here's the same exact thing. It's a thing. And each one of us see it, see the one thing, with, we see a greater emphasis, catches our eye first. And that's really what I'm saying here. Because God ultimately approved what each writer wrote before it got into the Bible that you either hold or are reading. So God was okay with John saying, sent here, has to do with I'm thrusting you into what? This work, the work that God had set for him. And that's exactly, uh, uh, I'll, I'll get to Ephesians here in a second. I want to take a pause. I'm going to hit a little commercial. If you were here earlier, we had uh, as part of our slides in the beginning. This fall, Richard McClure, the, the, the elder who, who came and spoke to you just shortly ago, 
he and our elders are going to be doing a Foundations of Grace study. It's essentially um, an introduction to theology. And so if things like when books were written and how they got into the Bible, which is considered canonicity for those who have been in seminary, I mean, all of these things are fascinating to some of us. We can't go too deeply into any of it from the pulpit on Sunday, but I can tell you that for some of us, there is, there, you want to go deeper. And if you want to go deeper into this stuff, my encouragement is to keep on the lookout for when that starts. It's going to start next school year, and I personally am really looking forward to participating in that. But speaking of how John saw this a little bit differently, one of the, the, our most prolific New Testament writer was Paul. And in, in Ephesians 2.10, Paul writes this. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, that's God the Father, had prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. So like John, Paul is emphasizing, emphasizing that we were created in Christ to work. Good works. So hopefully you're good with that because it gets even better in this phrase. The phrase, him who sent me, appears ten times in John's gospel. In the five times up to this point, the phrase was preceded by Jesus using a personal pronoun. Chapter 4, it's my food is to do the will of the Father. Right? Chapter 5, I do not seek my own will, and so on and so on. I, my, singular personal pronouns. Here, Jesus uses the plural form, Hamas, which is Jesus is deliberately and noticeably to John changing the emphasis from himself and what he is doing and is now including them. We must do the works of him who sent me. Were they ready? Nope. We rarely are. They struggled up to and beyond Calvary to fully grasp what Jesus was doing. But here we are. Jesus is is narrowing his focus in, in, in his preparations of his disciples. And he's moving off of, this is what I am doing. I'm about my Father's will. I'm to glorify his name. That's why I'm here. They didn't get it. Nobody got it. But... He here chooses this sign to the Jewish people as the time when he's going to shift gears and say to the boys, it's time for you to step up. What really struck me, like many of you, I have personally struggled with understanding once Jesus calls us how our efforts are supposed to fit in with what God is doing. Jesus just included them in the we, right? We're, we, we, we will actually get to the miracle that Jesus is going to pre- perform here. But to me, the bigger miracle is that we're included in the we that includes God the Father and his son Jesus. They were included in the we 
The power is their power. It's not me. It's not you. It's not them. The we here is that we are being, this is the adoption bit that you've heard if you've been in church for any part of time, that we have been grafted in. That's another way that it's put. But the we is, is that you are now part of a we that is headed by the Father and the Son. It's a game-changing thing because the, you have here that the power of God working in and through us is a spiritual thing. It's with, with respect to the spiritual realm. What God is looking to accomplish is something that is very difficult to see amongst the crushing white noise that's going on around us. Because around us, whether it's a war, whether it's gas prices, fill in the blank, around us is a lot of things that keep our eyes off of the Father. Jesus knows that Calvary is months away and his time with the disciples is coming to a close and he picks this time for them to start understanding that they need to be more focused on the Father like he is. This is true for every single believer, every single one of us at a certain point in our life, God's, whether we're reading God's word, we hear a certain sermon, we have an unexpected conversation, or we read a particular article, at some point, we all need to understand that Jesus and his Father expects more from us than just simply showing up. Because if we're all honest, we spend an awful lot of time just showing up. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. What I'm saying is God expects more. A friend of mine that I was talking to this week, and I was telling him I'm struggling with preparing this and how, how to convey it, and he goes, well, you know, it seems to me like they needed to graduate from hanging on everything that Jesus said, every word that Jesus said, and switch gears to put me in, coach. I kind of like that, to be honest with you. You know, because there's different ways that once you're on the playing field of life and you're in the game, if you want to press the metaphor, we all know some people are stars, some people are just out there, some people are watching what a bird go by, you know, but at least they're on the field, right? We want to move from, boy, that's really interesting, and man, that's really, wow, that's really awesome, to stop listening and be prepared to get to work, because that's what Jesus is saying here. Verse 6, we have our miracle. And after he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who formerly seen him as a beggar said, Isn't this the man who sat begging? Some said, He's the one. No, others were saying, But he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. Therefore, they asked him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and he told me, Go wash in Siloam, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. There are many things that can be said about this miracle, this healing. If you think the seven signs recorded in John, if you think about them, the one thing that strikes me is that the closer Jesus gets to Calvary, 
the more inexplicable the signs get. The more difficult it is for you to just sort of write them off as just a thing, right? Like, let's be honest. You know, if a skeptic could look at the, the, wine to, uh, the water to wine in Canaan and go, that's eh, a parlor trick, right? Or you have um, the, the healings as staged events like some of the stuff we've seen on TV, right? But when you get to something like the feeding of 5,000 from a couple of loaves and a couple of fish, and you got probably 10,000 or so, maybe more witnesses, now all of a sudden, eh, that's a little bit harder to dismiss, right? And Jesus walking on water, that's another case where a skeptic can go, well, look, of course you can expect his, his followers to say something like that. Sure, fine, we'll go ahead and grant that, all right? That doesn't mean that it didn't happen, but you understand where the skeptic's going to go, uh-uh, right? But that's what makes this one different. This healing... As objectionable as we may have found it earlier that God would have this man born blind and live 30-some-odd years in blindness, as objectionable as we might find that, it reinforces the fact that this isn't some kind of a trick thing, right? This is something where if Jesus is looking to authenticate the fact that he is from the Father and the Father is in him, to the Jewish people, then a whole community knowing that this guy was begging because he had been blind from birth and, and restoring his sight, that's a thing. That is a thing. That's pretty remarkable. So then you have Jesus, he, he declares this thing to his disciples. We have to be about the works of the him who sent me, right? Good thing. Then he gets down and he kneels down, spits on, creates some mud, and and wipes it on the guy's eyes, and yes, I mean, you can make a case, look, he sent him to a, a, a pool that was sent, so he's doubling down on the whole sent thing. You, you know, sure, that's not the primary purpose here, okay? The primary purpose is Jesus was showing them that sometimes when you're doing things, it gets messy, and it may be uncomfortable. Does anybody really think that Jesus needed to make mud to have this guy's eyes be healed? I don't. You may, you may come down differently on that, but Jesus didn't need to do this. He's making an example of, for his disciples of what sometimes being called to do something by God is sometimes involved doing something that some of you might he'll be spitting on the ground and making him smear on his face. I mean, there's some of you that the germ, you know, germs aren't your favorite thing, and so that, that sounds kind of disgusting to you. It sometimes boils down to getting very uncomfortable if you are going to be used by the Lord in a particular way. I mentioned earlier that sometimes we can struggle to align our lives with what God expects, and I believe that happens in part because we get overly fixated with the here and now. My good friend Don, we don't want to talk about it this way, but he nearly got killed this week in a car accident. Now, he only messed up himself and he's going to need some surgery to get himself straightened out, but that bothered me immensely when I got that news because somebody I care about very deeply was in a, it was in a bad situation, and that could have been worse. And your brain goes to where it goes, and you got to reel yourself back in because, well, A, it didn't, it wasn't worse. 
And B, even if it was, I know where he's going. We don't want to talk about stuff like that because we're, we are so anchored to everything that's going on in our life right now. I mentioned it earlier. The, whether it's something that's going on in the economy that has you wringing your hands or there's somebody in your family. Well, my sister, I found out within the last month, my sister has stage four cancer. It's bothering me. But what's, I great some, I mean, amazing comfort is, is I've talked to my sister. I've gotten really uncomfortable with my sister because we were raised Catholic. You guys have heard that if you've been around here any amount of time. And I just straight out said to her, okay, what do you think, how do you think you're going to get to heaven when you die, you know, straight out, no, you know, pulling no punches with her? And we talked about that, she, it, you know, she, she had a very Catholic kind of grace version of Catholic going on, but it boiled down to that if she trusted in the completed work of Christ for her salvation, she knew she was a sinner. That was an uncomfortable conversation for me, just like the ones that I had with my father. It, those are uncomfortable that's the bigger picture because glorifying the Father, which is what Jesus fixated on, is about the spiritual realm. It's not the here and now. It's that. Jesus was doing the will of the Father, and he said it over and over again to glorify his name. That's not the way we, way, you know, way, the faith tradition that I came to faith in sort of dismissed a lot of the spiritual stuff. Oh, you know, raising hands and all this other kind of stuff. Back, back in that day, we were talking earlier about how old I am. Back in that day, that whole Pentecostal movement thing was considered just out there. It's not out there. It's the chalice in the two faces. It's people who, when they read God's word, they see that God is spirit and he's worshiped in spirit and truth. And then there's a whole group of us that kind of try to make it more about God being active in, in our lives now and what should we be doing and what's God's will for my life. I'll tell you what God's will is for your life. Do the will of the Father. That's what Jesus did, and we're told to emulate him. No, that's not consistent with a lot of stuff that we were taught in church. I struggled for decades wondering if I should be doing something like this or run the software company that I ran for three, 30 years, right? Am I, am I secular or sacred? Here's a kick in the head. There's no such thing in the Bible. Nothing. And where was I taught about secular and sacred? At church. It, how do you know the difference? I am grateful for here at Grace for the fact that we strive. We don't do it perfectly. Let's make that very, very clear. But noticeably, we, we are fixated on stay in the Word, get in a K group so that you can learn about this stuff if you're new to the faith, and then get on with doing something that the Lord has placed on your heart. I see Buzz is here. Buzz had a life, a whole life of dentistry in this town. I don't know, 40 probably years. And yet the Lord decided at this stage in his life, you're going to be the president of a university in, in Africa. 
Really? How does that happen? I'll tell you, it doesn't happen because you're just sitting on your hands. It happens because you're looking for what God is doing. And you're looking for the opportunity to serve him and his kingdom, which not all the time is this, right? It's not all the time what's going on in with your job, your career, the kids, this, that. I mean, all of those things we have to deal with. We're to be good stewards of whatever God has entrusted us in this life. God expects you to do that, but it's not an either-or. It's an and, right? You're expected to be a good steward, and, by the way, if we're to emulate Jesus, you have to pay attention to what Jesus did. Spiritual and worldly matters have vastly different timelines. This man was born blind 30-some-odd years ago so that when Jesus passed by, he could make a point to his disciples and to us. That's a vastly different agenda than most of us are comfortable with. Well, here it is. You know, what is it? Strap yourself in. That's the way it is. John noted this last week, and I really liked it. He said, the world, the devil, his demons, or your own self-centeredness at times have us majoring on the minor. For most of my lifetime, I battled with that whole sacred thing, sacred, secular. There's nothing wrong with doing good deeds in the flesh. If you feel compelled to serve in a soup kitchen, that is a good thing. In fact, it's a commendable thing. But that may not necessarily be the thing that God wants and is sending you to do. It might. How do you know the difference? We're going to talk about that in a second. Let's wrap this up. Head, heart, hands. The power of we, as I mentioned, begins with the Father and Jesus and now includes you. You, me, we're in that we. You know, there's the us's and the them's. Well, the us's is head by the Father and His Son. I like our chances. Before salvation, the here and now was all you had. Paul in Galatians 4, verses 8 and 9, it's not going to be on the board, sorry, this was a late ad for me this morning. Paul reminded the Galatians that salvation made them spiritually alive. And then he asked a very simple question. Why were they clinging to the here and now? It's a great question. Is your head primarily focused on spiritual matters or the here and now? The power of we is primarily spiritual. So heart, are your works of the Father are the things that you're doing, are you sure? Can you be sure? More than anything, our heart determines what we do. If we're to be doing the works of him who sent us, how can we be sure? Can we be sure? And I think we can. Perhaps not perfectly, but like I said, noticeably. And here's how. Hands. Pray. Always start with prayer. Prayer is work. You remember Gethsemane? Drops as blood. It was work. 
Ask the Lord to reveal what he is doing and what you can do, then get to work. What did Jesus do before he did anything in Scripture? He prayed. Ask the Lord to reveal what he is doing, give you eyes to see it, and then ask him if he wants you to do it. If this is a struggle for you, I got an idea to get you going. If you don't have one, start a prayer journal or use a notepad on your app. You know, I, I mean, when I first started really seriously praying every day, I had little pieces of paper. It was pathetic. I, you know, they were around my, on my nightstand, and it was just a mess. And then, I don't know, 12 years ago, so ago, each one of us started getting personal cell phones, and then you go, had these awesome apps. The first one I figured out to, to use, I used a grocery app. So I would put in prayer requests as grocery items, and then that way I could move them around and, and be memorable. Now, of course, the apps are getting much more sophisticated. It doesn't really matter what works for you. Get something to keep track of what you're praying about. And I might add, I, I only started, I only added this recently. I start putting a date next to it because after a while, you don't even know how long you've been praying for something. I prayed for somebody's salvation for 15 years, and they got saved. And you sit there and you go, wow. Those are the things that, you, you know, you wouldn't know unless you were keeping track of it. And when the Holy Spirit puts something on your heart, don't judge it by whether or not it makes you uncomfortable or how well-suited you think you might be for the particular task. Because this capability, how everybody is so enamored with whether or not you're a fantastic dentist or you know how to write code better than the guy sitting next to you, doesn't really matter much in God's economy. In God's economy, what matters is what the works that he's prepared for you, as it says in Ephesians 2.10, and are you willing? Are, are you willing or is he going to have to find somebody else to do it? When John asked me to join this staff seven, over seven years ago now, I knew I wasn't well-suited. <laughs> and those of you that were here know that I wasn't either, don't you? Not at the time. It's been a rough road for some of you. But I am so grateful that God interrupted my comfortable Christianity and said, step out, Roy, and buckle up, boy. It's not going to go the way you think it is. You're going to be doing things that you haven't done in your entire life. I don't care that you're 60-something years old. It doesn't matter, Right? It just doesn't matter. It's, it's a spiritual battle that we're all in if we bowed our knee to Christ. It's not whether it's going well this way. It's whether it's going well this way. If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, God has something spiritual for you to do as well. I promise. Let's pray. Well, Father, I, I, I'm grateful for this word and um, for the opportunity to share it. And I pray, Lord, that you will, by a prayer, encourage the ears of those that hear this message, if they're not praying for your direction, that they would begin doing that. And if they're not sure and they want... Um, 
some help in that regard, that they would have the courage to, to speak to someone in this church that they're comfortable talking to and, and get on with it so that they can be more involved in the kingdom works that are occurring all around us. I pray it all in Jesus' name.